You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today I want to continue with the theme that we've had the last few weeks of looking at socialism versus capitalism. And the reason I want to do that on a healthcare program is that so many people don't understand the free market. So many people certainly don't understand the free market of healthcare because we've never really had a free market for healthcare based on a capitalist system. We've had too many government regulations, too much government oversight, and so much of our world these days and the movement, our politics, our governmental structures, our programs that are being passed in Congress at the federal level in particular, seem to be moving us more towards socialism. And I'm not quite sure that everybody really understands the dynamics of what's going on with capitalism, crony capitalism, socialism, and social democracy. It all kind of gets confused. In fact, there are some people who say that the young people today who seem to be favoring socialism really think that socialism is just another form of social media, and that's their exposure to socialism is social media. So there's an awful lot of distortion. The educational system that we'll be talking about today has led people to a certain in a certain direction. Last week's program, we talked about how you educate your young people in one generation is how you will govern yourself as a country in the next generation. And so the idea of socialism really isn't that removed from the whole issue of health care and whether centralized government would play the best role or dispersed options and choices giving power to individuals and to the people is a better way to go about establishing health care. So let's get into a primer. Let's let me have you listen to a short presentation on the comparison, a nonpartisan comparison, if you will. Very basic. Socialism versus capitalism 101. Let's listen to this and I'll come back and make some additional thoughts. Centuries. Societies have weighed the merits of free market capitalism and socialism. Debates continue over which system maximizes prosperity and better promotes human flourishing. Free market capitalism decentralizes economic decisions, giving individuals control over what to produce, how much to charge, and what to buy. Their decisions are informed by market prices, which convey important information about scarcity and consumer value. Proponents contend that capitalism delivers the best economic outcomes by giving individuals incentives to create and produce. Critics, on the other hand, point to the persistence of poverty in market economies and rising inequality as proof that capitalism fails to deliver broad-based prosperity. They maintain that this inequality ultimately gives the rich disproportionate economic and political power. In contrast, socialism grants the government the authority to make most economic decisions. The government chooses how to allocate scarce resources based upon what it determines to be most useful to society as a whole. Proponents argue that socialism ensures society's resources are fairly distributed. Critics claim that socialism fails to give people proper economic incentives to innovate and produce, which ultimately reduces economic opportunities for all. 
Opponents further argue that socialism's powerful central governments become autocratic and threaten political freedom. So which system is better for humanity? For as long as this question has been asked, the debate all too often devolves into name-calling and emotional arguments that fail to advance the discussion. And yet, it is imperative that we keep asking. With that as an overview of socialism and capitalism, obviously at a very basic level, I want to bring in some snippets from a YouTube presentation that you can find online from the Hoover Institution. It's called the Human Prosperity Project, and that's headed up by a gentleman named Russ Roberts. And Russ has an interview that I'm going to slice and dice and ask questions and give some commentary on. And the two guests that you'll hear from, in addition to uh, Mr. Roberts, is Victor David Hansen, who I've admired for a long time on his intellectual thinking and how he presents ideas from a conservative viewpoint. And Neil Ferguson, also a conservative, but he comes from, and you'll recognize his accent, comes from the European background and the conservatism of European politics and perspective. So what we want to get into a little bit today and discuss what they're going to be talking about is the history of socialism and free market capitalism and give you a perspective of what's going on, what's developing, how we got where we are, and whether today's U.S. progressivism is really socialism, Marxism, or some other form of government that's being proposed. And let's look at the pros and cons of each of those. I'm going to toss toss the first question to uh, Neil Ferguson. Um, After they've gone back and forth in the YouTube video talking about some elite socialist, um, a Joseph Sump pattern that I don't even know, um, who wrote a burning question that this program is going to try to discuss a little bit more. And the burning question that he presented was, can socialism survive? So, Neil, give us your thoughts on that. Can capitalism survive? No, I do not think it can. And he went on later to write, can socialism work? Of course it can. Now, it's important to know uh, that although he was a Harvard professor when he wrote those words, Schumpeter was in fact a conservative who did not regard the answers to his own questions as good news. Uh, He wrote, I think, in a spirit of wartime fatalism, uh, arguing that the forces that were making socialism seem more and more attractive uh, were very hard indeed to, uh, to resist. So the basic point here is that capitalism is going to have a hard time existing in the span of history because socialism has such a draw, a false draw, but still a very strong draw to human nature And I want to explore that more in this hour, but that's what I'm hearing you say. I want to now bring in Victor David Hansen and get his thoughts on this whole issue. Does capitalism have a chance against socialism? Yes, it does. A lot of these questions were posed uh, at the turn of the century, but all the way into the 40s. And this was before really the implementation of the capitalist uh, support or capitalist economies that incorporated things like the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour work week, Social Security, that whole uh, safety net, so to speak, that is constantly expanding, but 
it's really changed the dialogue. So when people say can capital capitalism can't survive, it was a period in which the middle and lower classes didn't have the social protections that were not only implemented but were eventually felt, at least in their nascent form, not to be incompatible with capitalism. Neil, a lot of people think of socialism and Marxism, and they probably have heard or maybe read something from Karl Marx. Where did Karl Marx go wrong, and how have things changed from the original thoughts of Marxism or socialism as the basis there? And maybe touch on the idea of nationalism versus sort of social classes or other ways that populations may be pitted one against the other. Well, Marx and Engels uh, got a couple of things wrong. I mean, it's not that they invented socialism, by the way. That idea had been around uh, since the 1820s and, and was a part of a debate about the Industrial Revolution that wages were inexorably going to be ground down to subsistence. And the core prediction, which Marx spent uh, the rest of his life uh, refining in dust capital, was that the tendency of capitalism was for widening inequality to grind the proletariat down into the dust until the point came when uh, the expropriators would be expropriated. Well, two things were wrong with this theory. One was uh, that, in fact, industrial capitalism did not grind wages down to subsistence level. The more industrialized countries had the highest wages. This was absolutely clear by the uh, time that Marx was writing capital, and it became even more obvious in the second half of the 19th century as time went on. But the second thing that they missed was the way in which nation states and the idea of nationalism would in some ways transcend the appeals to class interest uh, that were central to the whole uh, socialist and communist project. The proletariat uh, would not in fact unite uh, against the capitalist class because national loyalties would be more important than class loyalties. Well, I want to point out to our listening audience something that's very pertinent to today's world. What you're really saying is that there is a natural desire of people to be part of what some might call a a tribal urge, to be part of a group that's bigger than themselves. And what Marxism was trying to establish was a tribalism of the working class against the capitalists and create that as the battle, the war that would create a larger government, more power, if you will, given to a centralized force that would equalize that uh, disparity that was created by emphasizing the difference between poor and capitalism. And that really failed, is what I'm hearing you say, because people didn't just associate being poor against capitalism because they saw that capitalism actually could allow people to rise up and to advance themselves in ways no other uh, system could. So we seem to be moving towards different types of tribalism. One, the best way is that we are united as a country. We have a national approach and a national pride that we have in each country that holds us together, something that binds the entire culture together in order to advance under whether it's capitalism or some other system. But this idea of nationalism, of unity and pride in your own country and your own people is very important as we move forward. 
And we're going to talk about this tribalism in a different way as we move forward into some of the other segments I know. So um, let's go back to Victor David Hansen and sort of get his take on this whole idea of nationalism, capitalism, and tribalism. Victor, give us your thoughts. Well, it's funny that Marxism and socialism, the less uh, toxic brand, I suppose, of it, have always argued that class interests transcend national boundaries and they create a secular religion and then in extremists and they disparage therefore they call the alternative to their theories uh, cocaine or opium as did Marx but in extremists when there's when their backs are up against the wall it, whatever system it is whether it's national socialism in Germany or whether it's Soviet communism remember what happened Hitler thought he could get rid of the Catholic faith he couldn't do it Stalin had almost abolished and destroyed Christianity, Orthodoxy, and Soviet Union, yet it lingered on. And finally, an extremist people were allowed, say, during the, Russia, the German invasion, to continue to worship. It's funny that after he came out of his self-imposed exile after the shock of Operation Barbarossa, the first thing that Stalin did was drop the word comrade and start addressing everybody about the motherland. And they owed Mother Russia their allegiance. In other words... Even the most diehard extreme socialists remember, uh, at least believed that religion and nationalism were stronger human impulses than was this sort of abstract idea that uh, workers of the world would unite uh, across nationalist uh, boundaries. This is an interesting discussion of tribalism and association and identity with various groups to create a political movement. But we're up against a hard break, so let's take a break, and we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmb. HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. I want to continue this discussion by pulling out segments of a YouTube presentation made by the Hoover Institute. And we're getting deep into this idea of nationalism and populism versus socialism. And it's so current to the United States. What's happening, because across the world we have nationalism with uh, the Europeans uh, wanting to create a United States of Europe and then 
England trying to split off with Brexit. In the United States, you have a populism with Trump, and yet you have socialism going on. So clearly we're in this kind of a debate that's so important, which is why I want to do this program. And so I'd like to hear from uh, uh, Mr. Hansen his ideas on this conflict that we're seeing across the world, and certainly in the United States, about populism versus and nationalism versus socialism, progressive, all those terms that you have. What's really going on here? I think in the EU there was uh, this idea that there was going to be a new European man. As Niels written when Kissinger got wind of that, he said, who do I call? Is there a president of Europe? And the point being is that for all of the rhetoric of the EU, there was no ability to create a new European man based on common class uh, affinities. And even whether it's today been transmogrified into global warming or uh, abortion on demand, whatever the particular cultural issue is, nationalist concerns are much stronger. And so the EU is now being, I guess, quadrisected in the sense that the Southern Europeans have real differences over finance, as uh, Spain, Portugal, Greece, and Italy with the Deutsche Bank. The Eastern Europeans have very nationalist concerns about illegal immigration that are not shared by Western Europeans. Brexit, of course, where a lot of British thought, people thought, you know, I have more common uh, affinities with people who have long residence within the confines of the United Kingdom and speak English and have a proud military tradition than I do with the Belgians or the Italians or the Czechs. Well, if I'm hearing you right, what I'm hearing you say is that nationalism is a really powerful force that unites people, and it is much more important, and it binds people much more than even cultural issues, which there can be a dramatic difference if the heritage of, say, some of these European countries are so different that they really see the world, have a different worldview. So it's hard to unite under being a a European as opposed to being uh, from France or Italy or Spain. Now, what's one of the other problems with the kind of socialism that exists when you have different cultural issues, isn't there a tendency to reduce spending on things like military in order to increase the uh, social welfare programs? And doesn't that create a real vulnerability for outside forces uh, to come in and um, take advantage of that weakness? I would just notice um, there is a rule throughout history that socialism tends to enter be uh, in. I guess the, I guess the word would be weaken the ability for defense because there's this formula that every every uh, drachma that's spent on hoplite armor comes at, at the expense of social of social activism and welfare, or every tank or every airplane does. And the and the excuse apparently is that if we were to rearm at a very minimal level, then we would be taking mother's milk out of children's and things, uh, children's mouths or whatever, but it always has to be an either-or dialectic with the socialists. Neil, give us your interpretation of how the young people in the United States may be interpreting socialism, which may be a generational difference in terminology and ideology, uh, maybe even different from those who have come from so-called socialist countries. What do young people really think about socialism? 
as far as one can see, when when young Americans say they're in favor of socialism, they're not actually in favor of the expropriation of the means of production and the state control of the commanding heights of the economy, which would be, uh, I, I think, a strict uh, interpretation of socialism. They are essentially saying, and I get this from listening to interviews with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we would like the United States to have a welfare state and a tax system more akin to that of, uh, of Western Europe. Because I'm not sure that we're really talking about socialism a lot of the time in the United States. We're, we're just talking about should taxes on the rich be higher? Should there be universal and free at the point of, uh, of service healthcare? That kind of stuff. And to me, that's not socialism. And it was never how socialism was understood by the people who set it out as an ideology in the 19th, uh, in the 19th century. Neil, you may be right in terms of the technical definition of socialism, but there seems to be a creeping socialism, if you will, that I'll define as growing more and more government, more and more influence of our individual lives taken on by a central force of bureaucrats and government elites, if you will. And um, I'd like to hear David um, David's response to your comments. That may or may not be true, but there's a trajectory that socialism inevitable. I'm not a determinist, but it seems to always want more of, from the individual and more shared property. I'm looking out the window at a San Joaquin Valley vineyards, and I'll give you one example of what I mean. In 1936, there was something called the Raisin Administrative Committee, and that was to help the farmers find a market. And basically it said this, you don't own the produce on your own vineyard. You don't own it. In fact, it's a felony for you to dry your own raisins and sell them. They belong to the U.S. government. And so when you uh, harvest them, we take them and we stack them in a, a big uh, lot, and they're called the reserve raisins. And then we determine how many can be sold in the United States, and the rest will be given away are sold cheaply below the cost for cattle feed or brandy or overseas for poverty program. And anybody who tries to sell those raisins and acts as if they own them will be charged with a felony. That's still in operation today. And so a bunch of bureaucrats determine, uh, and I did this for 30 years, they determine even though they didn't plant the, the grapes, they don't own the property, they say, but they were going to put me in jail if I decided to harvest them and say they were my own property. I think the idea of an individual autonomous citizen with absolute freedom over his own goods and services and property has been highly reduced and redefined. Neil, if I understand your um, comments, this encroachment of the federal government in the United States, this expansion of Washington power, is not necessarily characterized as socialism or the growth of socialism, even though it may ultimately lead there, or maybe we have our own definition of this combination of capitalism and a welfare state that on any given election or any given perspective think people might think we're going too much towards socialism or too much towards capitalism, and it's our job to sort of keep this balance. Um, going back today? through the, the, the history of the United States in the, in the 20th century, the encroachment of the federal government as well as of state governments on the rights of individuals hasn't really been driven by socialism in the way that socialism drove uh, 
countries to the left in Europe and indeed in much of the rest of the world. Let's not forget that after 1917, the most extreme version of socialism, which aspired to create a communist society, became extraordinarily prevalent, not just in uh, in the Soviet Union, but uh, all over Asia, in, in parts of Latin America, even in parts of uh, Africa and the Caribbean. But the United States is a kind of outlier here because really socialism has not been a successful political brand in American history. And the stuff you're talking about, I think, comes from a different source, which is the the strange way the administrative state expands its bureaucratic reach without necessarily a powerful ideological or certainly not a socialist ideological rationale. Well, Neil, whether you call it a socialist rationale or not, clearly the people in the bureaucracy have a leftward leaning and many of them would like to get into an ideological governmental structure of socialism slash Marxism. People just really aren't hiding their socialist tendencies or their Marxist tendencies in our national political dialogue these days. So whether it's their intent or not, the entire growth of bureaucracy seems to be coming from people who would have that political bent. And I'd like to hear a little bit more of David Hansen's thought on this subject of socialism and the growth of government and bureaucracy. Well, what I'm suggesting is that when the right or the capitalist uh, interest says that I'm, I want eminent domain because I want to tear out this part of downtown Fresno or L.A., and I, I'm not doing it because there's a public need for a highway or a bridge or a reservoir or a pipeline, but I want to do it to encourage economic development. And I feel that these 50 little small businesses can be liquidated because I'm going to build a Radisson Hotel with a big parking lot. It'll be, for the, it'll be good for the economic development. And that is, you're, you're quite right, in the tradition of crony capitalism. But the people who support it and the bureaucrats who welcome it uh, tend to be more liberal. And it's very weird how capitalists work. They give a very uh, socialist argument, and they call it capitalism, and then they employ the administrative people who believe there is a role to expropriate property, not for necessarily the ostensible common good, but for a more abstract idea of the general welfare. And that's what we see all the time. We see a lot of capitalists acting as if they're socialism, predicated on the idea that a lot of people are socialists that are in government and will support them. Russ, I know you've got some thoughts on this whole idea of crony capitalism, whether capitalists really are socialists at heart, that they want government subsidies and government protections for themselves, but want to talk about capitalism for everything else. And I think we're starting to see that corporatization of politics in the United States, where, in fact, business leaders and uh, scions of this um, whole business world are really coming out in support of capitalism and in the politically correct woke world that we're seeing just in recent events. So give us some of your thoughts, because I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart. Well, Milton Friedman liked to point out that most business uh, leaders were not capitalist. They were capitalists for the other industries, but their own was special and needed you know, this subsidy or that to make it work right. Uh, and their, the idea that they are taking advantage of the natural impulses of others is um, kind of the essence of, of crony capitalism, which I would contrast with what I call the real thing. 
Neil, I think this fits into some of the theories that you've thrown out about the crony capitalism and how people running big businesses really are not capitalists per se, and they're kind of ruining the whole idea of developing true free markets. Give us your final thoughts on this for this segment. Tendency uh, for the free markets to produce, if not monopoly, then big businesses and, and corporatist relationships between business yep. and the state that that we're really undermining the free market as a, as a scheme of, of organizing society. But we're really getting into the details of what's happening in the news today. Big business, crony capitalism, and how do we get back to a free market as an organizing principle for our economy and our lives. Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back and continue with this interesting discussion. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about maybe one of the most critical issues that we're facing in this country. Can socialism actually develop and exist in the United States? Can it take over what many of us think is a capitalist society that has raised more people out of poverty, given more goods and services and wealth and upward mobility to the greatest number of people this world has ever seen? But given all that, can a form of socialism actually exist in the United States? Neil, give us what some say are like four different reasons why socialism can, in fact, take hold in the United States if we're not careful. One is that at its, at its best, capitalism leads to creative destruction, and that means that there are losers as well as winners, that, that there is this tendency for monopoly or at least big businesses to emerge. But he also makes two great points, which are really worth reminding people of. Uh, the, 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 the third reason he gives is that capitalism creates, educates, and subsidizes a vested interest in social unrest, which means left-leaning intellectuals and academics. And then he adds that socialism's irresistible to to bureaucrats and elected politicians. And so that nexus between uh, big business and, uh, and, uh, and the bureaucracy, I think, is there in, in Schumpeter's uh, argument, as is, and he sees this coming, the fundamental hostility of academia, of the intelligentsia, to the free market. I mean, and if that was obvious in 1942, think how much further to the left the academy has got 
since the 1940s. I mean, if you took today's Harvard professors back to the Harvard of 1942, they'd be absolutely appalled because it wouldn't be nearly woke enough. There's a vo- virtually no intellectual support for the free market and a great deal of intellectual support for socialism in American universities today. I'd like to bring in um, Victor David Hansen and get his thoughts on higher education since he's been so involved in it for a good while. What's this whole idea that professors are socialist, but they're really trying to get more and more income and pay, but I guess it's because they're getting subsidies from the federal government in various ways, including student tuitions, which allow their income to go up, as well as being consultants to the big businesses. I, I, really, I think the, the key to understanding higher education in America is to be, distinguish what they say and what they do. If you look at the pay differential between a part-time teacher without benefits or tenure or paid to teach the same class as a full endowed professor, it's a greater disparity than a greeter at Walmart and a district manager. And then if you look at their, the criticism of capitalism, they really are crony capitalists rather than uh, socialists on the barricades. By that I mean they have no moral hazard when they issue these student loans, they expect the government to underwrite $1.4 trillion of student debt, and they have no obligation, ethical, moral, or elsewhere, to say to their graduates, we can determine, take an exit test, adjudicate, calibrate, that you're now better educated, you're better able to earn a living, have a family, buy a house than you were before you came to college, although maybe statistics suggest that's true. And we're going to... Uh, cut costs so that you won't go into debt. But once the moral hazard is shifted to the government, then there's no incentive to discourage anything from a latte bar to a rock climbing wall in the student center to uh, 16 diversity and inclusion czars. And then finally, uh, which is really kind of disturbing, is that when we pile up these endowments and they're all – tax deductible and they're getting into 17, 18, 20, 40, 50 million, billion, billion dollars of endowments, then they really, the taxpayer is underwriting in a crony capitalist fashion what administrators and full professors and, and all of these people are doing and they're not subject to the laws of the market. Maybe this COVID virus and the quarantine and Skype will give some market reality to them because obviously there's going to be someone who says, I can download Nobel Prize winning lectures and hire somebody very cheaply to correct papers and cobble together uh, a Skype class and maybe get it accredited. And I won't have to charge a Harvard or Yale student stay home at sixty or $70,000 a year. And I think the universities are going to be very worried about that because inadvertently they might be subject to the laws of supply and demand and market value. Well, I do think that if one's trying to explain why in polling it's the youngest uh, age group of, of Americans who have the most positive view of, of socialism, the least positive view of, uh, of capitalism, and that's a very striking feature of recent polling, then you have to attribute at least some of this to education. Uh, and if you look at the ways in which the major universities teach modern history, uh, it is very striking how... How few courses are available 
on the realities of socialism. Uh, whereas there are all kinds of courses that tend to call themselves the history of capitalism that in close inspection are in fact uh, pretty much so- socialist in their uh, in their doctrine. So I think there's a huge skew in the way economic history in particular is being taught in major universities and there really aren't enough courses on the realities of uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the realities for that matter of, of Mao's China. Uh, and, and, and indeed, I think that's the, the reason that we've got this category error amongst millennials and Generation Z. They think socialism is Sweden, where capitalism is very dynamic. Yeah, the fiscal system is certainly doing more redistribution uh, than it does uh, in the United States. Uh, but I think it's a complete mistake to, to say that that's socialism. And if we just use socialism to mean higher tax rates, I think we're going to lose sight of the very, very important historical lesson, which is that when socialist regimes are established and are able to violate private property rights, when they actually come and confiscate the land and tell you you're gone, uh, indeed shoot you because you're a, a former landowner, that's what they did in the Soviet Union. That's what they did in the Maoist revolution after 1949. They expropriated and shot the landowners. If we forget that that's the core dynamic of socialism, that's what grew out of Marx and Lenin, um, and, and Marx, Engels and Lenin, then I think there's going to be this ongoing confusion about the dangerous nature of socialism. Socialism, wherever it's been tried in the sense that it was intended by Marx, has produced lawlessness either extreme authoritarian regimes or chaotic regimes, anarchic regimes. Take your pick, Cuba or Venezuela, which would you prefer? And I'd far rather, when people talk about socialism, we point them at Cuba and Venezuela than at Sweden, which is no more socialist in in reality than than the UK or really the United States. Let me ask uh, Mr. Hansen to sort of jump in on this. If we're talking about just an expanded government, a bigger social safety net, more transference of wealth, if you will, within a country. Is that necessarily such a bad thing? And that's not really socialism as young people are thinking about it. They just want a more activist government. Uh, Give me your thoughts, uh, Victor. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that if you looked at the U.S. economy, say, in January or December of last year, we had a record... Uh, low minority unemployment. We had about 3.5, 3.4% unemployment, pretty good GDP. We were, and yet we had a pretty generous social net to the extent that we were running still massive budget deficits for social programs. So the key is that to pay for the socialist agenda, you need to have incentives. I think we kind of squared that circle pretty well between encouraging capitalism and socialism. But Remember, there were a lot of people that were unhappy about it, and Niels talked about the youth. And why was that? Why did people say, why am I unhappy? And I think we had forgotten a couple of things, and it came from two sources of dissent. The first were, and we can see it on the streets of Seattle and Portland, we have had an entire generation of young people, and Neil's right, they were indoctrinated. Half of them went to college, but... When you saddle that number of people with $1.4 trillion in student debt 
and then you give them uh, a, a veneer of education that they're articulate, but they're really ignorant because they don't have the inductive method of thinking. They're not inculcated with that. They don't have an arsenal or toolbox of facts and data about the past or present or the natural world. And then you turn them loose on society, and they say to themselves, well, my grandfather at my age was married. They had two children, uh, three children. They had a house. They had cars. They didn't have any debt. What happened to me? Who did this to me? And they're articulate enough or they've been trained enough to know that there's methods of exegesis that can explain that descent. descent. At the same time, we had this globalized project, and it was wonderful in the beginning. I mean, it gave eyeglasses to people in the Amazon and antibiotics to people in Chad, and the Western means of production were Xerox across. But somehow we got into this matrix that the country, the states and the cities with a window on Asia from Seattle to La Jolla and a window on Europe from Boston to Washington or maybe even Miami, they uh, they felt, well, all of a sudden people in law and business and the corporate world and media and academia, we have a market now of 8 billion people, 7 billion people. And the people in the interior who had muscular labor or who were in entrepreneurial and they had a craft or a production that could be Xerox abroad, much cheaper whether it was making wine or peaches in Mexico or a laid worker's work could be outsourced to Korea, whatever it was, then they didn't do too well. And we considered, we confused cause and effect. So we basically said to them, and I'm talking now just to interrupt, about the constituents that voted for Donald Trump on the right or Bernie Sanders on the left, we basically confused cause and effect. We said to the uh, Trump supporter of the Midwest, well, you were a meth head or you're dysfunctional and you didn't learn to code or you didn't keep up with uh, the global economy. And we said to the people on the left, well, nobody told you to go to college. We didn't say you've been had by college and they sold you a a bill of goods with less information given to you about what your major will earn you and the debt that you will incur than when you sign up to buy a car from a car agency. They they inform, inform you of the moral and financial hazard far more honestly than any university does. So that there was a lot of discontent, and that that's where we are right now. And the, the cure for it was, I think, to unfetter and unregulate to some degree the economy to get up to near 3% GDP, Full employment, and and that would uh, and then to prune away programs that have a failed record and and enhance ones that don't. And I think we're pretty much there. Well, that's fascinating, Victor. I'd never thought about that. Where people on the East Coast who are liberal and want to be more socialist, looking towards Europe and the the economic and political structures over there. And people on the West Coast are looking to the markets in Asia, which are also socialist, communist, and see those as potential markets. And if they can get the government to help subsidize uh, their business approaches, we now have socialism in between those uh, two views uh, to Europe and then to China. Fascinating. But let's take a quick break. and We're going to come back and continue this discussion about socialism versus capitalism and where we really are in the United States. Are we on one side of that coin or the other side? And how does all this work in with the new corporate world involvement in our own politics? Be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. 
Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand join the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmv. HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m., for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. Today we are wrapping up this hour talking about capitalism, socialism, social democracy, nationalism. We want to talk in this beginning of this final segment about the progressive policies of increasing taxes and increasing spending and where that might lead. And then I want to wrap up this section about talking about this tribalism idea that we all are attached to some sort of identity, whether it's our football team, our high school um, uh, alumni association, uh, and it's turned into the kind of tribalization around race and race and ethnicity and the issues that have divided us from being part of a one culture that is blending. We never hear any more about the blended American culture, the uh, assimilation that goes on. We're now in tribes and how that is ultimately part of the political landscape. So let's hear about the tax and spend policies of the progressives. And have we lived through this before? Neil, give us an insight on the history of the kinds of policies that are being implemented today uh, from Washington, D.C. When you raise uh, direct taxation and you gradually increase uh, the state's uh, share of, of GDP and you, and you increase the amount of redistribution that happens because we ran this experiment before uh, and what's startling to me about the current debate in the United States is that essentially the Democratic Party is, is campaigning now uh, to do one of the biggest tax and spend extravaganzas uh, in American history. I mean, not only are they going to raise taxes, uh, uh, starting with the corporate income tax, but probably moving on uh, to capital gains tax, but they're going to increase spending at an even larger scale, could be three, could be five trillion dollars of, of new spending. Now, we know from past experience where, that's, where this leads, because even the U.S. has tried this before. It's not that we need to go looking to Europe for insights. 
if the core goal of uh, progressivism, social dem democracy, whatever you want to call it, is to use the fiscal system uh, to increase the number of benefits that are paid, expand the provision of healthcare, spend more on education, spend on infrastructure, and at the same time increase taxation, especially on high income earners and on corporations. It's absolutely obvious what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to end up with lower growth, and at some point you're going to have higher inflation. And if you don't have the higher inflation, then you're going to run into the nasty fiscal arithmetic of excessive debt, uh, because we've already been going in this direction uh, for years, actually, uh, going in this direction at least since the financial crisis, if not earlier. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's a whole set of different issues that don't have much to do with socialism. We, we saw in the 1970s where those policies led as the marginal tax rates rose ever higher on both sides of the Atlantic as it happened in the US too. Uh, and you ended up with the stagflationary mess of the 1970s. There's a reason Milton Friedman rose to prominence at that time by pointing out why this couldn't uh, really have ended any other way. To me, it's slightly depressing to see uh, the, the the rising probability, let me just say, that we're going to rerun this experiment expecting it to have a different outcome, and it won't have a different outcome. Victor, what's your thoughts on this envy and thinking somebody else is getting something more? So, you know, do people really just want equality even if it's at a lower level? Then are they so worried about somebody else who's got more toys, a bigger house, more cars? Uh, how does this uh, sort of envy play into the natural human instinct, and where do you see all this going that's happening with this progressive ideology that's taking hold in Washington, D.C.? I would just add that I think they call it gorge the bees, so that they increase spending to such a degree that it has uh, desirable effects on cuts, and one of them will be defense. We won't, we won't be capable of even spending 3.5% of GDP on defense, and they, they see that as a good thing. I don't think Europe, even with a larger population and a large GDP, is going to, it feels that it can afford to spend 2% to protect itself. And it's, it exists because the United States spends about 33% of the NATO budget. Without it, it wouldn't exist. At least it would have to make massive cuts in social benefits or raise taxes even more. But you're right. We've tried this thing before, with, and they're advocating, remember, a wealth tax and an increase in the uh, upper income tax rate. In California, it's 13.3 upper income. I think we have 1% of the population in California paying, or 5%, paying about 55% of the income tax. They want to raise it to 16%. And when you couple that with a new proposed Biden a tax, Obamacare tax, social, uh, payroll taxes on a large part of your income, you're easily getting up to 55% of your income. And unlike the Reg the pre-Reagan years, that's income without a lot of deduction. And so that is one of the purposes, is to spend so much money that it forces uh, a vast redistribution, a perceived redistribution in income. And I think we got to remember what the, the psychology is about it. Tocqueville said that, unfortunately, most people would prefer to be equal and poor than unequal and better off. And it was Hesiod that said the two most powerful emotions in the human experience were jealousy and envy, and he defined the difference. But they, it was the idea that someone else better off than you is a more important concern than you being better off.
innate human desire to make sure that someone, either through accident or inheritance or harder work or intelligence or anything, does look better than you do. And people can appeal to that natural uh, instinct. And it's, as you said, we've been through this before, so why would we do it again? Because it's an, because we're human, and, and it's a natural instinct to repeat this folly. We've been talking about socialism versus capitalism on the financial, the monetary, the materialistic side of the differences between uh, individual personal responsibility and spending your own money as to giving it to the government and letting them spend for the so-called social good as opposed to individuals deciding what is in their social good and collectively you wind up with a better system. But I'd like to wrap up this hour and this segment of the program by talking about um, the moral hazards, the changes that can come about, not from the economics of each approach, but how it tends to divide us into those tribes. I want to get back to the tribal aspects of changing from the economics of the poor versus the wealthy that Marx originally was was saying was going to create this battle and this change to Marxism to the way socialism has developed a a battle between different groups of people and different identities of people. So, Neil, would you um, address that first, and then we'll get on to um, uh, Dr. Hansen. I haven't touched on, but it's extremely important, and that is the metamorphosis of Marxism in the academy initially uh, into something that had nothing to do with economics whatsoever, or at least barely. Uh, the metamorphosis of it into identity politics, uh, critical race theory, uh, bogus notions of social justice, uh, and a whole set of, uh, of very distinctive ideas that really have nothing to do with uh, with, with socialism. But, but offer an alternative sense of collectivism based not on class, uh, but predominantly on race, but also on sexual orientation. And the rise in, in the universities of the United States of ideas like intersectionality has created a, a whole new set of problems for those of us who believe uh, in the, the fundamentals of individual liberty, uh, not only liberty economically, but liberty politically and, and in a civil sense. And I'm, I'm almost as troubled as, as, as uh, by the, the, the resurgence of social democracy and, uh, and tax and spend progressivism uh, by this, because I think this uh, emphasis on identity, to use a term that you used earlier, of tribal identity or of uh, uh, intersectional identity is very, very corrosive, not only of uh, of individual liberty, but but also of of, of national or, or patriotic identity. Uh, I, you used tribal earlier in, in that connection, but the point about nationalism was precisely that it transcended traditional tribal loyalties and created a possibility of national unity on a very large scale. That has been crucial to the success of the United States since its foundation. And I think the radical left's new form of socialism, which is the identity politics cancel culture variant, is just as threatening, actually, as the old socialism we We've been mostly talking about. Victor David Hansen, how about you jumping in and giving us your perspective on this change of one segment of society against another segment of society using victimization 
as opposed to economics and the struggle between socialism and capitalism and how everything is sort of morphed into this new tribalism that especially the left has been very smart in um, exploiting. I think cultural Marxism as a sort of founder of Gramsci, I think the idea was that with the Industrial Revolution and the modern welfare state here in the United States that you were not going to get socialism with a strictly economic appeal. There were two, there was upper mobility and there was a material appetite that was being satisfied. So what's happened is we are redefining victims, not by economic uh, means or class, but by race. And we do that because race is a static idea. It's not fluid. When you, when you have people doing well, then they, they go from one class to another and you lose constituents. But under this new identity politics, LeBron James may have 20 Mercedes and Jaguars and live in a great, in a gated estate and, you know, be worth a half a billion dollars or Oprah. But he's a victim and he said, you know, I don't feel like I can walk out. Well, he's in much less danger of walking out with his security team than a guy in Youngstown, Ohio on a forklift is. So the idea was that the left said to themselves, the system is so insidious of free market capitalism that we're losing constituents. So now we're going to turn to this idea that you're going to be part of the other for life. And Barack Obama from his Colorama mansion in DC or his 12, $14 million estate on Martha's Vineyard will forever be a victim as Michelle has said. She said that, you know, Michelle Obama said, I can't even go to a supermarket without somebody reaching, wanting me to reach and pick up something for her. Or that when Barack walks out, who knows what's going to happen to him. Well, So it's, it was a very brilliant transformation in the status of the victim of capitalism because it's fixed. It can't be changed. And so I think the left hit on something and they've redefined Marxism and socialism and victimization and victimizers. Well, we're at the end of this hour. It's a fascinating discussion on capitalism versus socialism, the various shades of different types of governance in between and how things have morphed and the way we are now viewing socialism and the tribal battles within this country and how our own politics is now morphing into something that many people probably don't fully understand and you guys today have really shed a new light on how we can view what's happening in the United States so I want to thank the uh, Hoover Institution for uh, presenting this information on YouTube and I've tried to take bits and pieces and highlight them for this audience here on America's Web Radio and so I want to thank the uh, participation on this um, YouTube uh, presentation that I've drawn from from uh, Russ Roberts from Victor David Hansen and Neil Ferguson. It's been a fascinating discussion. So I hope the audience out there will join us next week as we continue with Healthcare Insight and talking about the uh, topics of the day, healthcare, and other topics that would relate to healthcare. Uh, see you next week. Thank you all. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.